Good morning. So we are looking into Psalm 6. The early church classified Psalm 6 as a penitential psalm. That means it is a psalm about repentance from sin. In fact, for churches that follow the traditional church calendar, Psalm 6 is one of the seven penitential psalms read on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is the first day of the Lent period, that is the 40 days leading to the death and resurrection of Christ. So it is considered penitential. But today, it is disputed whether this is the penitential psalm. There are those who praise the church fathers for their wisdom to classify this psalm as a penitential psalm because it is not obvious that it is about repentance. And there are those who dispute and say they made a mistake. For us, I do not normally bring disputes of scholars into the pulpit. But to use this psalm, to understand this psalm, the very meaning of this psalm, we need to decide, determine whether it is about repentance or not. Because it makes a lot of difference when we sing or read this psalm and pray this psalm, are we repenting from sin? So we will determine whether it is a penitential psalm. In the process, we also learn more about God, about humanity, and how humanity should relate to God. So we are going to read through Psalm 6. As I read through, let us pay attention to the psalm and ask ourselves, is there any indication that it is about repentance? Or is there any indication that it is not about repentance? Okay, so we try and think through it together. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuild me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my group mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard and the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Before we consider whether this psalm is, is about repentance from sin, we want to look at what is clear and not disputed in the psalm. David is suffering, not only in soul but in body. Look at the graphic language he uses 
to express his suffering. The poetry is beautiful. And secondly, his suffering is caused by other people. Of course, there are people who cause us suffering unintentionally. In fact, what they thought was good intentions, but it resulted in our suffering. It happens. But in the case of David, those who caused him suffering were not doing it out of good intentions. They were evildoers, evil intentions. So the psalmist is going through a very difficult time, suffering in body and soul, so painful that he cried out to God for healing. So there are times in our life we face similar situations. When we are in a similar situation as the psalmist, this will be a very useful prayer to help us go through that dark night. We saw in Psalm 3 and in Psalm 4, David explicitly said that in the face of adversity, he could still fall asleep. No problem. But in Psalm 6, you see, it's hard for him to fall asleep because of physical pain. I had a taste of that recently, how physical pain can make you difficult to sleep. But in this psalm, where David talked about difficulty falling asleep, we don't know whether he eventually fell asleep or not. If he did, he cried himself to sleep. But in this psalm, he reveals why in the face of adversity, he could still fall asleep unless he faced physical pain. And this is an important lesson for us. How to be able to sleep soundly in the face of difficulties, in the face of adversity. So let's look at what David was like for him to be able to sleep in adversity. You see, Psalm 3, we read, it was when he was running away from his son Absalom. He was a fugitive, he was king, but because his son rebelled against him, he had to run as a fugitive. And Psalm 3 tells even then, he could sleep. Well, what is his secret? Well, in these Psalms, he prayed. Verse 4, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In show, who can give you praise? He says, God, deliver me from death. If I die, I can no longer praise you. The first time I read this, I was reading through without looking at the total context. I felt it sounded glipped, meaning insincere and shallow. It's like a politician saying, I want to be a minister to serve the people. Well, there are politicians like that, but how many? Often it sounds glib. So it sounded glib to me, you know. Wow, God, if you don't save me, if I die, I cannot praise you anymore. But then I realized this is a psalm prayed to God. 
When you pray to God, you have to pray from your heart. You have to be sincere and honest. So the psalmist, men, what he said. And then, who is this psalmist? David. I know David is known for many things, good and bad. And he's well known for the Psalms. He wrote many of the Psalms. The Psalms are associated with him. The Psalms is about praise, worship. That is David. He's no ordinary king. He's no ordinary believer. He's a believer known for worship. When he was king, the Ark of the Covenant was not in Jerusalem. He wanted to bring the Ark to Jerusalem because the Ark symbolizes the presence of God. He wanted the presence of God in Jerusalem. The first time they tried to bring the Ark back, it was a disaster because they didn't do it properly. It's supposed to be carried by poles, using poles and by the Levites. So they just used a cart and it fell and somebody touched it and he died. So David complained, that, how can I bring the ark to me? Later on, when he discovers that when, where the ark was left, the person was blessed, he determined to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Finally, he managed to bring it to Jerusalem the right way. Then as he reached Jerusalem, he was so joyful that he danced and he was wearing what the priest normally wear. Not in his kingly robes. He was in public, not with his kingly robe, and he was dancing. There was no dignity. You see, the, the protocol is very crucial to royalty. But he, he just forgot about that. He was so joyful. He just wanted to praise and worship God and thank God. He danced without properly dressed as the king. So much so that one of his wives, Mikhail, we were told, despise him in the heart. And we know how he determined to build a temple for worship. And God said, you cannot build because your hands are full of blood. You are ritually unclean to do that. And, he, and God said, your son Solomon will build. And he made everything, raised the funds, made all the arrangements, even set up the singers and so on for worship. You see, David lived to worship God. Worshiping God was more important than anything else, not even being king. Being king is part of his worship of God. That is the person who prayed this prayer. When he say, if you don't heal me, if I die, I can no longer worship you, he was sincere. It was from the heart. You see, adversity threatens what we value most in this life. Don't you think so? Whether directly or indirectly, when there's adversities, when we are troubled, it's because it threatens things that we value the most, whatever that may be in this world. And what did David value the most? Worship. Not even being king. That's why when he was running from Absalom, you know, his kingship is threatened. But he could still worship. We read in Psalm 3, 4, 5, he was worshipping. He could sleep. But of course, until a time where he was suffering physically. 
In the same way, adversity will threaten what we value most in this world, in this life. If we are like David, we value Christ and worshipping Christ more than anything else. We will be less bothered by adversities because adversities only threaten what we value most and adversity cannot threaten worship of God. And let's explain why when he thought he might die and no longer can no longer worship God, and that's how he prayed. So is that really applicable to us? What do we value most in this life? And that will tell us whether adversities will really trouble us to the point of difficulty sleeping. That is David's prayer. That is in the Old Testament. There was before Christ's death and resurrection. He talked about in Sheol, nobody remembers you and can praise you. But now Christ has died, risen, ascended. Unlike David's time, when believers die, they don't go to Sheol. Whatever, whatever there is, the Bible is not clear on that. We know from Paul, when believers in Christ die, they will be with Christ. So the idea that when they die, I cannot, no remembrance is you, cannot worship you, is no longer relevant. So this needs to be updated. So we need to think of the equivalent. What is the equivalent? Now that Christ has died, raised from the dead, delivered, delivered us from Sheol. So we need to update this in light of Christ. Paul in Philippians 1.21 says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see, Paul was struggling. When he wrote Philippians, he was under house arrest in Rome. He could face death. But we knew he didn't. Here he said he was struggling. What to choose? Because to be with Christ is far better. Now he knows what that is like. Because we are told in 2 Corinthians, he was caught up into the third heaven that is paradise, where Christ was, and heard unspeakable things. He knows what it means to be with Christ. It's so marvelous. He says to be with Christ is far better. But he says it's more necessary to remain because his mission, his calling is not yet completed. We know from the book of Romans, he wanted to go to Spain. He was trying to raise funds from the Romans to go to Spain. And he had not written the pastoral epistles. 
First, second Timothy and Titus. So his, his mission is not completed. So his calling is not finished. He's still needed in this world. He says, to go to be Christ is far better. But to remain is more necessary. The only reason why he live, because he's to serve, worship Christ, serve Christ. He can still worship Christ after that, but to serve Christ in this world. That was the reason why he lived. When he looked at the things of this world, the things that he gained in Philippians later on, he says, I consider them rubbish. He said, I count all things as lost in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What mattered most for him in this world? He said the things he gained, being a Pharisee and all those things of the world that people value. He says, I consider them rubbish. I count them as lost in view of the worth of knowing Christ because this thing actually kept me away from God and from Christ. That's why he said, I count as lost. And in the case of Paul, unlike David, he says to die is gain. To die is gain. He will not say, if you do not heal me, if I die, I can no longer worship you. It's far better. I worship God even better. So that is the updated version for us as Christians. So we may be thinking, well, Paul is an apostle, he's super spiritual. Is it for ordinary Christians? What, what is the basis for him to say those things? In Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If we are truly a believer in Christ, repent of our sin and believe in Christ, we have also been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ and raised with Christ. The life we now live is the life of Christ in us. So what Paul says, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain, is for all Christians. To the degree that we can say, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To the same degree, adversity in this world will not bother us. Whether adversity in the world, plenty, adversity in this country or in own life, we will be less bothered by the adversities in this world. If you can save it, Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Because the things we value most, it's not in this world. Nothing can threaten. The thing we value most. Of course, this is a goal as a Christian. When we first know Christ, it will be a very rare case 
Where we can say, to, live, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We have just begun to know Christ. We don't even know what it really means to know Christ. But that is the first step. Born as a spiritual baby, we have to grow in the maturity. The more we can say, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Indication of our spiritual Christian maturity. Spiritual birth means the spiritual life. Spiritual life means the spiritual growth. It's true that the more we can say to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, the less we will be troubled by the adversities in this world. But that should not be our motivation. Just consider them incentive to grow. The motivation to grow is because of what Christ has done for us. Who has made us into who we are and what we are. We have to recognize that this privilege that Paul talked about was bought with a heavy price. God himself had to come Born a baby, helpless baby, die on the cross as a criminal. It's not cheap, it's free. We are bought with that heavy price so that we come to know Christ, begin as a baby. Now it's fun to hold a baby for parents, even grandparents, and even sometimes. Uh, Aunties and uncles, it's fun to hold a baby. What if the baby does not grow up? Remain a baby. So our motivation to grow into spiritual maturity, towards the goal to be able to say, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is our goal. Christ has paid the price, he has bought us that privilege. Through the Spirit, we can all grow. Of course, some of us will grow faster than others. The important thing is grow. So that is the first reason why David could sleep in the face of adversity, even losing the kingship because that didn't matter to him what mattered was worship and nothing can threaten that and as christian we update that to paul to live is christ to die is gain another reason why david could sleep in the face of the adversity he committed submitted his adversity completely to God. Look at his prayer. He appealed to God's loving kindness or steadfast love to God's love. He committed all to God. What is more important is he not only committed the adversity itself, the suffering itself, he also committed those who caused him the adversity, the suffering to God. When evildoers bring us suffering and pain, the natural reaction is anger, hatred, bitterness, 
even revenge. David wanted none of that. He committed them to God. Pray to God and say, God will deal with them. So that he no longer there a grudge, hatred. As far as the enemies are concerned, it's God's problem, not his problem. Because of that, he's at peace with God, with the circumstances, with the adversity, and with his enemies and with himself. Completely at peace in the face of the adversity. So he could sleep. So when we are in a similar situation, we go through suffering, body and soul, because people have evil intention towards us. This is a wonderful psalm. They help us pray. Pray through the difficulty. But before we do that, is this a penitential psalm? Does it involve repentance from sin? Well, the best way to look at it is to ask, what is the cause of the suffering? Now, we already know the suffering is caused by bad people. If it is beneficial, that means it's not only caused by bad people, but it is also a consequence of David's own sin. So is there any indication that it is not a psalm of repentance? Well, the best indication, if it is not a psalm of repentance, is that there is no confession of sin in this psalm. He's suffering and asks God to heal. And if he, and he knows his suffering is because of his sin, he will confess his sin. That was what happened in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, we, we read in the superscription that it was when Nathan the prophet came to confront him after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he confessed. You read Psalm 51, you can see his confession and his repentance. And repentance is clear because he said, create in me a new heart. I no longer want that, the heart that intent towards sin. I don't want to sin anymore. And he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So that is a clear-cut confession of sin because he was suffering. Psalm 32 tells us that. Psalm 32 was, he was singing concerning the forgiveness he had received from God. And he tells us in Psalm 32, before he confessed, his bones dried up. He was suffering, it was painful. So if he is seeking God because of sin to heal him, he would confess his sin, but there's no confession of sin in Psalm 6. And also, it is caused by evil people, so we don't normally think of it as the suffering himself as sin. Other indications that it is about sin. Well, I can think of at least two. Look at the first verse. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, 
no discipline me in your wrath. The Hebrew word for discipline can mean two things. Very clear from the book of Proverbs, this Hebrew word occurs in Proverbs very often because Proverbs is a book meant to help parents discipline their children. It can mean punishment because of sin. So when a child sins, the appropriate discipline, punishment. Or it can mean instruction in the book of Proverbs to prevent sin. The book of Proverbs is full of warnings to young people. If you fear God and give his commandment, this is the outcome. If you don't, this is the outcome. So this is a form of discipline to train young people. The drill to them that there's consequence to wrongdoing. Bad consequence to doing wrong, good consequence to doing right. Because the book of Proverbs is based on God's created order. When God created this world, He put an order into this world. And this order can be summarized by, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You sow good, you reap good. You sow evil, you reap evil. Ultimately, in the long run, sometimes in the short run, good people suffer, bad people prosper. That is dealt with in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the book of Job. But on the whole, the book of Proverbs is correct. You reap what you sow, especially in the long run. So when God created the universe, He built into this world, this order, this order has physical, moral, social dimension. The physical dimension, we all know, they are described to the physical laws. There is gravity, the physical gravity. Gravity can be very useful. If there's no gravity, we'll be floating around, you know, it's hard to live. Gravity, when we use it properly, is very useful. It helps us to live. But when we violate gravity, seventh floor, you know, wow, the leaf is spoiled, you know. Wow, I have to walk down seven floor. Why not? I just jump down. You suffer the consequence when we violate God's order. In this case, the physical dimension is all the gravity. We suffer the consequence. Sooner or later, jump down is very soon. You violate in other ways, maybe it's later. But God has also put in place the moral and social dimension of this order. When you violate God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, sooner or later, we pay the price. You reap what you sow. That is the assumption behind the book of Proverbs. And that is the basis for training up children. Discipline. When they do wrong, discipline, punish so that they associate pain with wrongdoing. Today, a lot of young people have forgotten that, even older folks, that there are consequences to our actions. There are people in court and then they're sentenced, they say, oh, oh I have a pregnant mind, an old mother, why didn't you think of that earlier? And also the book of Proverbs is warning Avoid adulterers, avoid joining gangs, and so on. And these are the consequences if you do that. Warning, that is discipline. So, and discipline can also be to prevent sin, 
suffering to prevent sin. And the clearest example in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. I mentioned just now that because he was caught up into heaven, third heaven, the paradise, and heard unspeakable things, he received marvelous, surpassing revelations. And he tells us because of that revelation that he received, it was given to him a thorn in the flesh. Very painful. Because when he had that privilege, we have seen those revelations that nobody else has seen. Caught up in the paradise with Christ. He might exalt himself. So he was given a thorn in the flesh to discipline him, to prevent sin, so that he will not exalt himself. So discipline can be because of sin, can be to prevent sin. Or in the case of Job, for some other purpose. So there are many reasons why we suffer. But in this psalm, we are focusing on suffering caused by evil people. Now, we really need to answer this question. Yes, it's caused by the sin of other people. But is it also a consequence of David's own sin? Another indication that it may have something to do with sin is because when he was crying out against people, evil people who sinned against him, he did not swear innocence, unlike Psalm 7. By the provinces of God, we heard Psalm 7 first. We saw in Psalm 7, it's a different occasion. Then Psalm 3. Psalm 3, he was running away, Absalom. In Psalm 7. Psalm 4, 5, 6, there's no mention of the situation. Psalm 7, is a change. It's because of Cush and Benjamin. So it's a different situation. And it's clear from Psalm 7 that he was suffering. Suffering again caused by evil people. Not because of sin. He swore innocence. Like, now did Rodney mention that like the book of Job? Like Job, he swore innocence. Rodney even counted the number of times. He said, if I have done this, if I have done that. So if his suffering is because of his sin, not because of sin, we, we will expect him to swear innocence, but he didn't. So how do we solve this problem? Well, we need to look at a scenario where the entire sum fits nicely. And we don't have to imagine out of thin air a scenario because we are already given a clue. Psalm 3 tells us he was running from Absalom. 4 or 5 dimension situation, 6 dimension, 7 is the change of situation. So it's, it makes a lot of sense to begin to assume that Psalm 6 is also respect to him running away from his son, Absalom. Why did he have to run away from Absalom? Well, we go all the way back to 2 Samuel 12. Remember, David committed adultery and Bathsheba got pregnant, tried to cover that up, failed to, and caused 
Bathsheba's husband to be murdered. So David, the man of the God's own heart, committed adultery, committed murder. Two of the Ten Commandments. And before that, of course, he coveted Bathsheba, the Ten Commandments. When Nathan confronted him, exposed him, God gave him a judgment. God says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. I will do it this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So God gave him a judgment because of his adultery that led to murder. And this judgment was fulfilled when Amnon, the older son, raped Tama, his half sister. And because of that rape, Absalom, Tamar's full brother murdered Amnon. He had to run. Then he came back. And because David was slow to forgive Absalom, Absalom rebelled and managed to gain support from the people. And because of that, David had to run. And that was the situation of Psalm 3. Let's consider this is the same situation in Psalm 6 and see whether the situation fit this psalm perfectly. Now note, when God convicted David through the prophet Nathan, he passed his judgment. He said, this will happen. And when David left, he left behind 10 concubines. And we read later, when Absalom returned to Jerusalem, under the advice of Ahithophel, he went in and took these ten concubines and did it on the rooftop under the tent. So under the sun, in the sight of all Israel. So there's a direct connection between his adultery and his running away. Did God arbitrarily judge David that way? We have to go back to Proverbs, you reap what you sow. There's a connection between the adultery and the rape. And this is it. You reap what you sow. David violated God's command in multiplying wives. Deuteronomy 17, 7 made it very clear. The king of Israel must not multiply wives. David had multiple wives. For a man like him, he had so many wives and concubines. He's so used to taking one woman and another woman. Now we have to recognize he was a very God-fearing man. He would obey God's commandments. When Saul was after him, there was two occasions he could have killed Saul. 
against the wishes of the men who risked their lives for him. He refused to touch Saul because he's God's anointed. He feared God. He would not do anything wrong. He's a very God-fearing man. Why would such a God-fearing man, the psalmist, fell so easily just, before, just because he saw Bathsheba bathing? A God-fearing man will not fall so easily. Why did David fall so easily? Because he had many wives. He had taken so many wives. Taking another woman is just no big deal. If a God-fearing man had always one wife, it takes a very, very, very big step for him to step outside. After all, Bathsheba didn't come to him naked. Why did he fall? You read what you saw. He violated God's commandment. He took many wives. Because of that, he is morally compromised in that part of his life. So when he saw Bathsheba bathing that desirable woman, he had no moral defense. Especially since he's king. As king, he simply sent his men, take her. So it was kind of an occupation hazard for kings. To be fair, he didn't start off that way. He married Mikal, Saul's daughter, one wife. But then he had to run for his life. He left Mikal behind and, and Saul gave Mikal to another man. When he was running in the wilderness, he needed economic support and he needed to build political ties in view that he was already anointed king. So he did what most people would do. Most politicians would do in those days, build political ties and the means to build political ties is to marry the women of the different tribes. And he married Abigail for economic support. So he did what was sensible, what is politically, economically expedient for him at that time. But he ended up with him losing his moral grounding. As such a God-fearing man, he lost moral grounding in that area and he fell in that area. And what's the connection with the rape? If he had only one wife, all his children were the same mother. So it will be very unlikely that one brother will rape the sister. The rape happened because he had many wives. So you see the connection? His adultery, the rape, the murder, the running away from Macedon are both rooted in him having multiple wives. You read what you saw. The order God has created will work itself out. So he had confessed his sin. When Nathan confronted him and God passed a judgment, he confessed his sin, Psalm 51. So he had already confessed that sin. But the consequence of that sin lived on because of the moral order. It's just like a man who committed murder and put to jail on death row and then he know, comes to know Christ. And because now he knows Christ, he's forgiven, he's going to heaven, doesn't mean that he doesn't have to face a sentence. That is a consequence of his crime. 
So God's forgiveness usually does not overrule the outworking of the moral order, the order that God had created. Of course, it did not happen that way, but God is in control of the order. He can tweak the order to work it out the way He intended. So, His suffering in Psalm 6 is connected to His sin. That's why He could say, Do not rebuild me in your wrath, discipline me in your anger. But there's no need to confess because He has confessed already in Psalm 51. So there's no confession of sin. But yet, it is God's discipline because of his sin. So it is still about sin. So it is not penitential in the sense that it is about him repenting and confessing sin. But it is penitential in the sense that it is about a sin that he had repented and confessed. It's still about sin. So it's still relevant for him to say, do not rebuke me in your anger, discipline me in your wrath. So it is penitential in a sense. It is about sin. So God's commandments are given to help us navigate the moral order and be blessed. When we violate the God's order, violate God's commandments, do not live according to God's will, we will suffer in one way or another. So this brings us back to Psalm 1. The very first Psalm that set the tone. Do not walk according to the counsel of the wicked. That means, do not think like those who disobey God. Influenced by them, and think like them. David was thinking like them. Political, economic experience, Multiple wives, even though that violate God's commandments. What is expedient now may come back to haunt us. And do not stand in the way of sinners. Do not act like sinners. Do not see the seat of scoffers. Do not act like those who oppose God. Actually, this psalm parallel Romans 1 and 2. Surrender your life as a living sacrifice to God. Do not be conformed to this world. How? Do not of the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners. But be transformed by the renewal of the mind. How? Meditating on his word. Someone has set us the pattern towards spiritual growth. Christ has bought us giving us that privilege to be able to say, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And someone, confirmed by Romans 12, 1 and 2, has given us the pattern to grow spiritually. So we need a Christian community where Christ is honored, his word is preached and taught. The kind of fellowship to grow in Christ more and more we can say, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let us pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in Christ, we have this tremendous hope, this tremendous privilege that we can experience right now. 
as we celebrate Christmas, remember his birth, and meditate on why he came. May this message sing deeply in your hearts. For in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>